Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the jazz session. I'm Jason Crane. The jazz session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 338. Thanks to the members of the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. You'll find them at respectsextet.com. And if you go there, you'll find their albums, which many of which you can buy digitally at uh, respectsextet.bandcamp.com. You'll also find their concert itinerary, and I encourage you strongly to buy their recordings and to go see them live, both of which are highly enjoyable. Thanks also to Dave Rabel. He designed the show's logo. You'll find him online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thanks also to All About Jazz for carrying this show on their website. They have a widget that you can install on your website that will show the latest episodes of the Jazz Session. The most recent person to put it on their website is my friend Richard Kamens, who runs the excellent uh, jazz review blog Step Tempest. You can Google the phrase Step Tempest or just go to steptempest.blogspot.com to find his writing on a myriad of recordings and also on many live performances, uh, particularly those that occur in the kind of New Haven, Connecticut area. To find the widget, uh, it's probably easiest to go to allaboutjazz.com and then type Jazz Session Widget into their search box. Uh, That's usually easier than trying to find the code via any other means on their website because there's a lot of stuff there. My guest today continues the series of drummers. Uh, Last week on the show, if you're listening to this in real time, we had Jack DeJohnette and Derek Dickens. And this week on the show, uh, we're having Barry Alshul today. And then Matt Wilson is on Thursday's show. So it's it's kind of a little quartet of uh, really fantastic drummers of varying styles, of various periods in their careers. Barry is one of these guys who's been on everything. He's he's played with everybody, and uh, you know many of the seminal recordings of the '60s and '70s have Barry Alshul. And actually, recordings that have come out more recently that have been featured on this show, I think particularly of John Arabagon's um, Foxy album that has Barry on it, and he's on a new record with the Fab Trio. It was actually recorded several years ago, but it just came out on the Tum or Tum label, T U M. It's called History of Jazz in Reverse, and it's with the Fab Trio, which is Joe Fonda, uh, Barry Alshul, and the late Billy Bang. And so let's hear the title track from that recording, History of Jazz in Reverse, and then my conversation with drummer Barry Alshul. Thank you. 
My guest is drummer Barry Alshul, and uh, he's part of, among many other things, the Fab Trio with Joe Fonda and Billy Bang, whose most recent CD is History of Jazz in Reverse. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I, I thought maybe we could start uh, just talking a little bit about how this particular uh, trio got together and maybe also give you a chance to, to say something about, about Billy Bang, just one of my favorite musicians. Okay. Um, this was actually, I think, a concept of Joe's. For some reason, Joe heard this trio in his head and approached us and asked us if we feel like uh, doing something together. And uh, we both said yes. And uh, Billy and I knew each other from when we were much younger from the Bronx. We, uh, I'm about five years older than him. But we had mutual friends. Uh, we grew up in the same area in the Bronx. So I think it was the first time we had a, a rehearsal it was uh, totally improvised, uh, and it hit. We hit, so we said, yeah, let's form a trio. And I saw F-A-B, Fonda al Shul bang, and said, we're the fab trio, and everyone went for that. And so uh, that's how that came to be. And uh, so uh, it was pretty much uh, an idea of Joe's, who actually took care of the business for the trio. Mm. And... Uh, that's how it started. And it seems like you guys, uh, all throughout your, your performing and recording uh, time together, combined a, a mix of freely improvised musics with the occasional composition yes. that was thrown in there as well. What that, was actually, that started later on. We, uh, when we first got together, uh, we realized the energy that we were uh, putting out was much more complete than if we were playing tunes. Mm. So we decided to be a freely improvising group. We all thought compositionally. So the free improvisations were kind of in sections and different feelings and colors and so on and kind of compositional. 
So we did uh, that for about two or three CDs worth. And then I felt, I said, you know, uh, we should really start to do some other things. We've done this, and uh, some of it may start to sound repetitious or whatever. Why don't we just throw in some tunes? Let's write some music for the, for the trio. So we did, and that's what we did, yeah. So we played some tunes uh, in between free, uh, I mean, we did some free um, improvisation leading into compositions, improvised on the forms of the compositions mm. that, that that set up, and then went back into free and segued like that for a set. Uh, but there were a couple of, uh, we did a couple of uh, other people's compositions as well. Sure. Even on this album, there's uh, uh, Chan Chan from Compe Segundo yes. is on there. Yes. And that's it was really a thing. Me and Billy grew up in, in what's now called the South Bronx, and... Uh, it was a very mixed neighborhood and a lot of Latin music go, going on, really, sure. which we heard when we were very young. So that was kind of a, a thing, a natural thing for us. Yeah. Can you talk about what was it like in the South Bronx when you were growing up? seems like it was a real mix of cultures it was, and music. It was a true melting pot. And it was before uh, death violence. There was violence. There were gangs. But they weren't shooting people or really, you know, doing that kind of thing. Beating up uh, chains, knives, or whatever was around, but not as heavy as, as that. So it was a pretty rough neighborhood. Gangs were pretty much made up of specific groups, uh, uh, of ethnic groups. But, on the other hand, everybody was hanging out with each other, I mean, in, in the... In, in the areas that I grew up in, which were very musical. It was, uh, 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 when I became involved in the music scene, I mean, there were jam sessions in the neighborhood, uh, wonderful mentor musicians in the neighborhood, and uh, uh, so it was that kind of thing. And they uh, uh, embraced anyone who they felt had some talent. Mm. And also the Bronx had some, uh, uh, we were, we were pretty poor. And so there were some things in, that the Bronx had, they had a thing called Bronx House, which gave you music lessons, for example, for 25 cents. And, uh, so I made some use out of that. And, uh, the PAL, the Police Athletic mm. League kind of thing. And then the YMCAs always had people like, uh, uh, I remember I was, I don't know. 14 years old or something and Clark Terry uh, and or Billy Taylor and they used to let us sit in with them I mean it was incredible it was a great experience was this part of the jazz mobile or was this before no this was that the part of whatever the... Billy Taylor probably hooked up for the Y's okay in New York it was a this was an on a, a, the Y on a hundred and 63rd Street in the Grand Concourse or something like that in the Bronx you know that's fantastic. And so, uh, and there was all kinds of free concerts going on. Uh, Poe Park, Lewiston Stadium, uh, Randall's Island, uh, all these places had free concerts for the public. And they had uh, all kinds of music. And being poor, we went to anything we could, which was great, because I saw Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong, and Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, when I was very, very young.
I know that you uh, started playing drums around 11 after having played clarinet uh, for a few years before that. Do you remember what it was that, that made you make the switch? What attracted you to the sound of the drums? No. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. <laughs> it's like uh, it's like they choose. It's like the instrument chooses you in mm. a sense. You know, um, I started on piano when I was real young. Then I went to clarinet, and then this guy was walking with drumsticks in his back pocket in uh, junior high school. It was yeah, and uh, he was a neighbor. I mean, he lived around the corner from me. And I said, uh, uh, "Oh, you playing drums? Show me something, you know." And he showed me a roll, a simple two-stroke roll, Mama Daddy roll, it was called. It fascinated me, and that was it. I don't know. And I started. I made a drum set out of uh, fruit cake cans, and uh, I took uh, some lessons at this Bronx house. Got some rudiments with this. His name was uh, Ben Halpern. It was very basic stuff, and then I turned on the radio, and it was the make-believe ballroom on my make-believe drum set, and uh, uh, I practiced to the crooners, which had great big bands behind them, and of course,、uh, you know, Billy Eckstein big band and all that stuff was happening at the time, and、uh, um, and then I got.、Uh, Then I heard the、uh, Benny Goodman、uh, sing, sing, sing the the, the、uh, Carnegie Hall concert,、mm-hmm. and got interested in Gene Krupa, but not the big band Gene Krupa, the Gene Krupa with Roy Eldridge and Anita O'Day. The and, Let Me Off Uptown era, yeah, that Gene Krupa, stuff, right? Yeah, and that yeah,、uh, uh, you know, Drumming Man and、uh, right. all that kind of stuff. And then I heard the.、Um, Lester Young, Nat King Cole,、uh, Buddy Rich, and it wasn't Buddy Rich that got me at all. It was Lester Young, and there was one tune on that album that Buddy Rich was playing brushes on that I felt was a very up tempo tune, and so that was one of my goals to play brushes at that tempo. When、uh, you know, years later, when I went back to hear it, it really wasn't that quick of a tempo. <laughs> at the time, I thought it was. You know, what was、uh, it about Lester Young in that trio that that grabbed you?、Um, um, the phrasing, I suppose, and the swing and uh, uh, that kind of thing. And、mm-hmm. y- and you know, I guess I started to hear what I would play in that situation.、Uh, uh, not that I could, but. I could start to hear, you know, so、uh, that started to get me interested in, in, in、uh, other than the crooner, big band type of music. And then、um, my sister bought me the cooking,、uh, working, steaming series, and so that was boom, that was it. Then. Uh, Uh, Which I'll just mention; those are Miles Davis albums for yeah, folks who might not. No, yes, that's totally fine. Of, just in case anybody's listening, the Miles Davis albums, as, as well as the, the Gil Evans big band Miles、mm. uh, albums.
And then I started to listen to、uh, people like Art Blakey, Philly、uh, Joe,、uh, Max, and Kluk.、Mm-hmm. And then there was the second phase of Roy Haynes and Elvin Jones and Tony Williams. And then there was the what I call my the sub influence or something <laughs> was、uh, people like、uh, Lewis Hayes and. And uh, uh, Charlie Persip and、mm. uh, um, Roy Brooks,、uh, Lex Humphreys,、uh, Edgar Bateman,、uh, Frankie Dunlap,、uh, that group of people. Now, I've I've always believed and have said many times on this show that when kids start out playing their instruments, that improvising is an integral part of what they do because they don't. In many cases, don't know how to do anything else. Like they sit down at the piano and see what sounds they can make, or at the drums and see how they sound, and then they get that kind of educated out of them. And then at some point, they have to come back if they can to that freedom, that way of playing. But you, it seems like in a very compressed time, because I mean, one of the first professional gigs you had was with Paul Blay, just kind of just playing, quote unquote. I mean, that makes it sound simpler than it is. I understand what you mean. But、yeah. if you see what I'm getting at, that that idea that. Very quickly, you kind of went from okay, these are the drums to here's like the basic canon of drumming to now I'm a professional and I'm going to be free to do what the moment requires. How did that happen in your brain? How did the, how were you prepared to do that? Well, first of all, I never heard free music at all before probably. I was involved in wanting to be a, a hard bopper, so there were. Many years of non-professional work at various places in the various boroughs of of New York, of、uh, go- going back and forth to Montreal, playing with people like、uh, Linton Gardner, Earl Gardner's brother,、mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the, the the bebop cats up in in Montreal, to the younger cats that was. Coming up in New York, like George Cables and Liebman and、uh, Frank Mitchell and、uh, Grossman and、uh, Lenny White and all these cats, well, you know, we're just a few years apart in age. But uh, uh, Al Foster, uh, uh, Leo Mitchell,、uh, a bunch of of、uh, Jimmy Owens, you know, Jerry Jamat. I mean, a bunch of all these New York cats, you know. That we were all playing together and gigging together, you know, and then p- people got picked up by whoever they got picked up, and their professional experience started. Now my experience with Paul Blay, which, if you look at the amount of gigs we had over the years, there was plenty of time where we weren't gigging.、Mm. That I played with people that wasn't documented, like Lee Konitz. And Art Pepper, I mean,、uh, uh, I mean, going on tour with them、It、wasn't like、sure. a one-nighter.、Uh, Hampton Hawes and Sonny Chris,、uh, and those kind of things. Then going to Europe with Paul Blay, there were times I stayed in Europe and was able to. I was fortunate enough to get the experience to be able to play with people like Johnny Griffin, Dexter Gordon, and and Carmel Jones and Leo Wright and Babs Gonzalez and. And you know all kinds of people, man, that that were in Europe at the time, and so I was able to 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 do that, maybe off the radar as far as recording is concerned and so on, but as far as my experience was concerned, 
So, and, and then it being Paul Blay. Hmm. Now, Paul Blay was one of those cats who worked with Charlie Parker and Sonny Rollins and his first records were with Art Blakey and, and Charlie Ming. So wherever his head took him, his roots were where, in a sense, mine was, but he actually played it. I was practicing it. Sure. Know? And uh, so to me, what I was required to do in that was an extension of the music, right? not a, a change from or a different part of. Because the first time I heard Paul Blay play, and, it was, and I took Paul Motion's gig in that band, Paul was the drummer, I was still living in the Bronx, I was a janitor in a recording studio, this is how I really met Blay, that's where we really started to talk. Um, <clears throat> but I heard Paul with Gary Peacock and Paul Motion playing in this club. And they played a really out version of Olio, you know, but it was Olio, you know, and it, you know, it was Olio, no matter how out it was, <laughs> it was Olio. I mean, you couldn't play straight time to it. You couldn't, you know, but, and I said, wow, what the hell is that? And I, and I felt Paul Motion, drum-wise, was doing something uh, conceptually uh, the next step, kind of, or a half-step from Elvin. And, uh, but I didn't study it. I didn't listen to it. Uh, somehow, I, the first gig I had with Paul Blay, he said to me, you want to play some standards or you want to play some of the stuff I'm into? And I said, play whatever you want. And I just responded to what was happening. Now, how that happened, someone asked me that some years ago, and I don't really know. The only way I could figure it out was that my sister is a classical pianist. She's six and a half years older than me, a Juilliard graduate, all that. So there were some years when she was in the house practicing and I was messing around with the drumsticks. And there were times I was playing to what she was playing. But it wasn't time. Sure. I wasn't accompanying her. I was playing counter melody, whatever it was that was going through my head. But they were licks. They were phrases. They were whatever it is. Uh, playing to Beethoven or whatever she was practicing at the time. That's the only thing, except that I was able to hear the music from car crashes or from train rhythms or steam pipe rhythms mm. or whatever it was, and was able to, uh, and found that in that music, there's a place for it. Uh, that's the only thing I can say, because I never listened to free music or free, uh, 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 or, or, or more free contemporary classical composition until really Braxton turned me on to some stuff to listen to, yeah.
I feel like in many ways people make your biography too simple because obviously all those all those names you just mentioned that you played with both in the states and in Europe. I mean, those are some of the great names in both the so kind I of left out yeah, swing and bop and hard bop traditions, right? Uh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, sure. And and to kind of pigeonhole you into just being part of the free community is well, too simple. That, well, unfortunately, that's what happened to me, as well as. Uh, Uh, me and Rashid Ali used to discuss that, and we used to say we didn't know if our past experience was a blessing or not, you know, <laughs> because of uh, of that exact thing. Yes. When you started playing more regularly in more free settings, was it satisfying to you in the same way that that kind of like driving a group with time? Was did you have to find new ways to kind of get musical satisfaction when you weren't the tr keeping time in that sense? And I may be displaying uh, no, my I own know exactly here. what you mean. Um, I've been very fortunate that most of the steady bands I've been in, like Sam Rivers, and even Circle, because of, of, of with Chick and Dave in, in, as a rhythm section, kind of you know, uh, there are moments in the music. Well, that could happen. Sure. And so that when that did happen, it was really happening. You know, it was like... And the other part, I've always felt for myself that no matter what music is coming out, it's got to swing. Mm. And I don't mean necessarily in a 4-4 snap your finger sense of a swing. I mean that it affects your body some way where you either feel something, even if it's a negative thing, you know, or it just makes your body sway or move or jerk or whatever it is, then it's swinging, you know? Yeah. And so uh, to me, that is part of the continuum that I try to bring in that. And, uh, in, and then trying to find ways to make uh, a freer thing swing put me in finding other ways to play time or implied time or something like that. So now I use, I have three concepts of time, in time playing, implied time playing, or non-time playing. And can you give us a little uh, primer on, particularly on the implied time? What Implied time playing would be uh, uh, setting up some some kind of a sound cushion and uh, and uh, 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 that uh, uh, deep down inside is based off of a time signature, but you're playing around it. Mm. You know, you're just playing around it. It's never stated, but anytime you want it stated, you could. So you're implying the time. Do you notice when you're playing in a club whether people are physically reacting to what you're doing? Are you Do you ever catch sight of people in the audience and notice, well, like, is a foot tapping, is a body moving? Yeah, sure, yes. Of course, it depends upon who I'm playing with, but sure. <laughs> but uh, um, but I try to to make that happen a lot. Yeah, sure. If it, you know, but usually the people I'm playing with, it's happening with the, with them. I mean, take a cat like Roswell Rudd, you know, who I've been playing with, and it's just swings, you know, it's just swings. That's yeah. It. So you know. Uh, you mentioned in the beginning when we were talking about the Fab Trio that uh, even when you are – the three of you were improvising, that you were often improvising in a compositional sense. Um, and I wonder if you could just say 
say more about that, what it means to think compositionally for you? Well, I don't, first of all, I don't know if it's a matter of thinking compositionally, mm. because when, when you're playing, if you're thinking, you're late. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, sure. Uh, uh, so that is what is how you are mm. at that point. It's how you conceive your music. You think of it in a certain compositional sense where, uh, you know, there's a, a beginning, a middle, an end. Uh, there's a, a, a story. There's a, uh, uh, a feeling. There's a color. And it's an area. And when that area is left, not only is the, in free improvising, not only is the creative energy of that place no longer there, but that, by the time it's left, it could stand on its own as a complete piece. Sure. Yeah, so that's what happens. Yeah. yeah. You uh, you played for years in a trio with Sam Rivers, and uh, Sam was on this uh, show a couple of years ago. And on the occasion of his passing recently, I was listening back to that interview, and he was saying, uh, kind of similar to you in a way, that uh, he is often also put into this camp of free players, and yet he was also a guy who wrote a ridiculous volume of music and composed for large ensembles. <laughs> you know, so the day he died. Right, exactly. I mean, almost from the day he started till the day he died, he was writing for, you know, very complex pieces for large bands. And that for many of the people that we consider these kind of icons of the, the free or more adventurous world, there are, like you're saying, these deep roots in the, right. in the tradition. That's right. Uh, uh, I mean, Sam, you know, his experience is from like people like Muddy Waters and Billy Holiday <laughs> to Miles Davis to, you know, McCoy Tyner to, to, you know, all kinds of people, Cecil Taylor and, you know, so he covers the gamut. And that's been my influence. That's been my experience. The, the guys that I played free with for the most part have come out of that era mm. into a freer concept, not the guys who came two generations later who were listening to free concepts, and that's their route. Uh, no, my, the people who inspired me, their route was bebop, pretty much, yeah. Does that make a difference in the sound, do you think? I think so, but that's just me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Uh, can you talk about how you first uh, met Sam Rivers and began playing in that trio together? Uh, I first met Sam Rivers in 1964. There was a bass player around at that time named Jimmy Stevenson, uh, who was one of the first uh, free bass players on the local New York scene. And uh, he got a, uh, a gig uh, on one of the... Uh, days of the October Revolution and asked me and Sam to do it with him. And so that was the first time I, I played with Sam. Uh, it was in 1964, at the, uh, rehearsing for it, but at the October Revolution. Could you tell right away that there was something there, something about between, me and between you and Sam that made you want to explore it more? Yeah, but it didn't really get together uh, until 72, 73. Sure. Where we were really able to spend the time together. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are you able to express, uh, maybe this is a dumb question, I don't know, but able to express different sides of your personality as a musician depending on the situations that you're in? Or is there some kind of core Barry Elshul thing that's always I would there? I hope or there's both. a core Barry Elshul thing yeah. that's everywhere I go. I mean, in the, uh, whoever the gig is, yeah, that, that uh, there's a me there. Yeah, sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's part of what you, you know, what I was brought up anyway, uh, and my whole generation and the generations before me, uh, to strive for, which was... Uh, one time, Philly Joe Jones said to me, "You got uh, when you're sitting in, you know." He says, you, "When you're sitting in, you don't change a thing, you don't move a thing. You sit down on someone else's drums and you play like you, you know." That's it. You pl no, he said, "You play and sound like you." Mm. Uh, that's it. That was, you know, you uh, uh, part of what you wanted to do was develop a personal sound. And then a personal concept, a personal way of phrasing, a personal, you know, that was what it was. So when you listen to someone, I mean, you know, up to a certain era, I suppose, I listen to someone and it's very distinct who they are, mm. you know, by their feeling, by their sound, by the way they phrase, by their ideas. If you were actually to do that, to sit down at someone else's drums, not put your own cymbals on, not put your own snare on, not adjust any heights... And just start playing. How do you actually physically sound like Barry Elshul? What are the techniques that are at your command to make their drums sound different under your hands your than touch, under their hands? Your touch and how you conceive. That's pretty much it. I mean, uh, you you adjust. I mean, uh, I go on the road now and I never bring drums, and so I have a different drum set every every gig. No kidding. Oh yeah. I mean, are you kidding? I'm too old to carry some drums, man. <laughs> unless I got, unless I got a, a roadie or something to do it for me. No, no, no. Uh, I carry my cymbals. Okay. I know some cats who don't even do that, and I just need about a half hour with the drums to make sure and to to know that these are the drums I'm playing on. No one else is going to play them until I and I'll just tune them up and so on to the way I tune. And uh, the guys in the band say to me that, uh, wow, you're making every drum set sound the same. Uh, which is the way my drums, you know, to a degree. And it's how it should be. 
I'm sure it's with Jack and Matt, all those cats. That's what happens. You develop your sound. The younger cats, I'm the, uh, I mean, not the younger, younger cats. There's a certain period of, of cats who I felt, felt that they were accomplishing the goal by sounding like someone else. And uh, no, I can't agree with that. Mm. How did you actually work on your sound? I mean, it seems it when you talk, you know, musicians use this kind of language all the time. And I feel often like for people who listen to this show, that that concept of working on your sound is like learning how to levitate or something. I mean, it's just it's, it's so far outside the bounds of what you normally have to do in your life if you're not playing music for a living. Yeah. I don't even know if it's possible to talk about. But did you get to some point where you thought like, oh, okay. Now I sound like me, and I don't sound like all these other people that I grew up listening to. How did you even do that? Well, there was a, a uh, well for part of that consciously. I mean, uh, uh, there was a part when uh, there's a time when, uh, if you think that way and you want that accomplishment, um, you've been influenced by all these people, and. You're playing, and you, all of a sudden, a Philly Joe Jones lick comes out of your in your playing. Well, you recognize it. That's mm -hmm. Philly Joe. That ain't me. That's Philly Joe. So next time it comes out, you try to change it a little bit. You try to do something, you know. And with all your, you know, you know who your influences were, and you know which is your Elvin licks and your Roy <laughs> licks and your this like and. You try to change it. Also, I believe that drums don't play you. You play the drums. There's my drum set. It ain't doing shit until I get there. And so I have a sound in my head of how I want the drums to sound. So I will make the drums sound that way hmm. because I know it can. So I will make it sound that way. Now, I have a little drum company in New Jersey called the Creative Drum Company, who tomorrow at 4.30 is bringing me the Barry Alshul signature drum set, uh -oh. who I have the snare drum of already, that I totally designed. I'm not talking about cosmetically. I'm talking about uh, the type of wood, the, the thickness of the wood, the, the mixtures of the, of the lacquer instead of uh, polyurethane, the, the this, the that, the type of hardware everything. It's my design. I used uh, 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 techniques from the 1930s, the 1940s, and the 1950s in, in different style drums, and took it and made it into what I hope is going to be my signature set, not so much for the commercial thing, but for me to have more of my sound without me working so, you know, on someone, you know, uh, it's there. Uh, hopefully, but, uh. And the, uh, and this design, these designs are based on what you've had to do to other drums over the years. Exactly. And so you've just eliminated the, exactly. the tinkering. I know what, yes, exactly. Right. That's fascinating. Now, yeah. in, in, but in terms of things like selecting the wood, for example, is that because you've played so many drums made out of so many different kinds of woods that you've now got a catalog in your brain of the things well, that you that, like? And, and also you do some research. You know, mm. I know some of the, 
the drum makers and the, the, the mavens and you, and you talk to them and you find out about that most drums are made out of maple and stuff. But I wanted a, a, a kind of a, a, a richer, deeper sound without having to do a certain type of tuning and blah, blah, blah. So, so mahogany. So it's made out of mahogany and it's, uh, you know, all these kind of things, you know. Barry, can you talk about some of the projects that you're involved with these days? I know you're uh, pretty busy. Uh, well, I've been involved with, with some projects with uh, the trombonist Steve Swell and a German saxophonist by the name of Gebhard Ullmann and Hilliard Green. Uh, another pro well, the project with Billy, uh, unfortunately, Billy passed, so that's over. But there was the Fab Trio, mm. and uh, every now and then um, Roswell Rudd gets together the Trombone Tribe, which I'm a part of. And uh, I've been doing uh, some duos and trios with uh, John Irabagon, the uh, saxophone player who was uh, a winner of the Monk competition in 2008, and since then has been quite active on the scene and we have a couple of projects together we're doing a couple of tours and recordings and so on and actually john was on the show uh when the album that you and he did uh foxy came uh -huh. out together right. yeah. and i i highly for anybody who uh who doesn't feel like they've heard you in just a kind of burning you know this this like classic mode that we're talking about i highly recommend they check out that record because yeah. it is 60 solid uninterrupted minutes 80 or 80 that's right oh my god yeah, it's even more crazy uh yeah it's it's just incredible and uh i mean just the demonstration of endurance alone i think is it's pretty incredible on that right i said to him i said you sure you want this like, positive there's no tension in the release it's all tension he says exactly <laughs> Oh, that's fantastic. How did you and he get together? How did he come to you for that? Never? Who's the best player in uh, others do the trail? You know, oh, uh, uh, Mo Mopa Elliott. Mopa. Yeah, Mopa Elliott. So Mopa was curating uh, 
a month at the Stone or something like that. Okay. And he uh, just had the idea of putting me together with John. And uh, he called me up, and I'm open for all that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, when, uh, people have thought I disappeared off the scene for years or whatever. I was right here, having all kinds of people come over to the house to play. Uh, I was teaching mostly at that period, and quite frankly, no one was calling me for gigs. So, you know, that's what I was doing. But I was playing with a lot of people, you know, coming through the house. So it was like, uh, so Mopa had the idea. And he called me and said, you want to do this? I didn't know who John was. I said, I didn't know who Mopa was, <laughs> really. <laughs> but I said, wow, the younger generation is, trying to, is calling me up to just, sure, let's check it out right away. And so, yeah, so, uh, I, and also uh, there's a young saxophone player by the name of Jake Saslow. Mm -hmm. I, know, I know Jake since he was in his mama's womb. Uh, <laughs> we shared a two-family house, his parents and me. Wow. And uh, so uh, by the time he was 16, I really started to mentor him, uh, uh, telling him uh, people to listen to that he wasn't coming across by himself. And uh, uh, so he's another cat that's uh, that's there. And then I, I and uh, he's part of a project of my own. And uh, I have some other projects in mind that uh, I don't want to talk about now because I started to talk about it and it kind of fell apart. And so I'm not going to talk about. It. <laughs> All right, let's not jinx it. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and you know, uh, and I feel now that uh, um, this things that's happening, I can't really like tour the same way all the time, and, mm. and, and, and like I did twenty years ago, and so on. So, uh, um, I have to consider that now in in accepting some gigs. Uh, uh, my playing and my energy, I feel, is is better than ever. But there's other things. <laughs> sure. So, uh, yeah. yeah. You, I know you taught for uh, for a while at Sarah Lawrence College, and kind of throughout this interview, you've mentioned several times, without being explicit about it, but um, talking about this youngest generation of players and and maybe some disconnect to the the kind of roots in the same way that you had when you were growing up. And I wonder when you were teaching this generation, did you do things to address? That deficit, and and I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, absolutely, if I'm oh, absolutely, it. yes. But but the younger generation, the under thirty generation now, that's not who I'm talking about. Okay, because the under thirty generation now are great. Matter of fact, the under thirty five generation, I'm all for it. I'm a big fan of these guys. Yes, yeah, of all of them, really. No, not them. There was another generation where, uh, um. Kind of during the Young Lions heyday, that yeah, whole kind of thing. Like, yeah, kind of then, yeah, which is the, the period I was teaching, you know, 93 to uh, 203, I was pretty much teaching. Sure. As a matter of fact, uh, people like uh, Harris Eisenstadt mm -hmm. and Ben Koretnik, these were guys, my students at Sarah Lawrence. And so, and if you listen to the music they're playing with now, so that kind of uh, yeah. didn't just go in the... Uh, uh, traditional direction. You know. Sure. Um, uh, finally, we're approaching the end here, but people often say, and, and many, many, many people have said on this show, that in order to play, no matter what style of jazz you're playing, it's necessary to have some grounding in the tradition. And I wonder what you think about that statement, and if you agree with it or disagree with it, why? Well, for me, the continuum of the jazz 
lineage of the line depends on a very American quality called swing. So yeah, I believe that there has to be a swing to your music. Like I said, it doesn't have to be the traditional swing. Do you have to if do you have to know the tradition to play jazz in the sense you're talking about? I would say for myself, yes. Mm. I feel uh it makes you freer. Because if look, what is freedom? They talk about free music and free this and free that, and then you start to break that into a style. Well, that's con that that contradicts the term. Uh uh so to me, there's really one freedom, and that's the freedom of choice. And that's it. In anything, politics, life, whatever it is, the only freedom is you have, the, you have choices. Now, if, to me, the more musical choices you have, the freer you are. If you could only play squeaks and honks and that's your world, then that ain't so free. That's your world. You know, you're in that box. The same thing if you could only play... Uh, one traditional style, that's it. So, and if you do, I mean, that's a complete world in itself, all of them. I mean, you know, it can be developed and it can, you can stay there and, and be stimulated for your whole life mm. and, and deal with that. But for me as a free, who has not only been branded as a free player, but I kind of consider myself a free player, not an avant-garde player. But a free play because of my definition of freedom, which is to have as many musical choices to play and be able to put it in spontaneously within the music and make it musical. Make it that, yes, that's, this fits this place in the music. This is actually logical that it, it's in this place in the music. And it doesn't just have to be the same style you started playing that tune in or whatever it is, you know. But, and that's your job as a musician to make it musical and make it fit and stimulate. Well, that's a beautiful definition of freedom, and that's a, that's a great place to draw to a close. My guest is drummer Barry Elshul, who's been on so many of the greatest recordings in this music, and uh, it's such an honor and a pleasure to spend some time with you. I thank you for doing it. Thank you for having me. I had a good time.
That's music from the Fab Trio, Joe Fonda, Barry Alshul, and Billy Bang, and their album History of Jazz in Reverse. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This show is member-supported, so if you enjoy what you hear, please do become a member. You can do it for as little as 10 bucks a month. However, there's a membership special going on for the next two folks to join at the middle or upper levels. You will receive a copy of Anthony Wilson's CD-DVD set, Seasons, which is a very cool thing to have. So if you join at the $25 a month or $50 a month level or the $250 a year or $500 a year level, you'll receive that CD-DVD set. And actually, at either the $50 a month level or the $500 a year level, you'll also get mentioned on every show, like the people that I mentioned at the top and bottom of this program, because you'll be an official sponsor. Not a bad deal, really, if you want to get your name out there, or if you just want to help keep the show alive. So that's it for this episode. Please get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.